0: your Bibles this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes 4. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 6 this morning. We have slowed down, as you've noticed, for this portion of Scripture. We're hitting some very practical elements as we walk through the text over the last many weeks, probably better than a month now that we've been on these, uh, not just in Ecclesiastes 4, but been on these problems that are presented in the hearts and minds of a person as he tries to reconcile the reality that God is in control. And we slow down to address each one individually so that we can formulate in our minds a proper way of thinking. Because a great deal of what we talk about on any given week in regard to these things... Are things that you're going to come across, if not in your own heart, then you're going to come across in the hearts of people that will ask you, well, if God's in control, what do I do with oppression? If God's in control, what do I do with death? If God's in control, what do I do with corruption, right? If God is in control, then what what do you do with all of these pastors that fall to sin, What do you do with all of these people that are sitting in the pews that pretend to be so good and then they get up and they leave and they live horribly? What do we do with the tears of the oppressed, with the children that are dying, with the people that are that are being cheated and robbed? What do we do with that when God is in control? If God is in control, what do we do with death? If God is in control, people dying, young people dying. And so we talked about those. Today we talk about ambition. Now, as I say ambition, it's probably not the best title because ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing at all. Uh, I, I could wish that myself was a little bit more ambitious. There are some people that are very ambitious and it's not necessarily a bad thing. But there's a problem that comes with ambition not so much the ambition itself that's the problem, but it's how others respond to the ambitions. It's how others respond to success that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a po- portion of man's heart that we can call it covetousness, we can call it jealousy, we can call it lust, but it's something that we find and it's something that is very, very relevant to today's society. And so we're also going to have a little bit of an an economics discussion as we talk about these things today. As we try to piece together Solomon's trouble in this next area of life. And the Bible says to us in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 4, Again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Maybe I should have titled this, The Problem with Envy. Solomon is thinking about travail. And as he talks about this, he's talking about the right works that are done. In other words, good, hard work. My wife and I were out Friday night. Uh, we're, we're digging a trench in our yard to uh, get water a little bit farther from the house. And as we were digging, I was telling her that it feels so good to be outside again doing some good, hard work. And, you know, you're cooped up for the winter and lots of things going on. And now we're out digging in the dirt and it felt good. There's something to be said for good, hard work. There's something to be said for uh, good, hard days of labor. And there's something to be said for exchanging honest labor for honest income. Those are all good things. Those are all right things. Good effort brings about good results. Hard work is a good thing. We're exhorted in the Scriptures unto hard work. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians four twenty-eight, "Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hand the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth." The Bible says it's good to labor. It's good to work. It's good to to, to labor with the spread of your, with the sweat of your brow. It's a virtuous effort. Solomon wrote regularly of labor in the Proverbs. Proverbs ten verse sixteen: "The labor of the righteous man." tendeth to life the fruit of the wicked is uh, to sin Proverbs 13.11 wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished but he that gathereth by labor shall increase hard work is a good thing it's a virtuous thing Proverbs 14.23 in all labor there is profit but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury let's start stop talking and start working right Proverbs 21.25 the desire of the slothful killeth him for his hands refuse to labor. Again, extolling the virtue of a hard day's work, of good work. Labor is right before God. And even unbelievers reflect wisdom and find blessing when they apply their hand to every right work. So the problem is not work itself. The problem is not the ambitious man who gets out there, who does the work, and who, who, who finds in that success. The problem, Solomon says is when he looks around at every right work and realizes that when a man works hard, he's envied of his neighbor. That for this thing, a man is envied of his neighbor. The problem is not necessarily in this case, the man putting forth the effort, but the man who envies the effort. Who envies the man who's put forth the effort. A man works hard. And he does so with integrity. He does not defraud or earn what he's, thank you, or earn what he has unjustly. He applies himself. He plays by the rules. And for his labor, others are jealous of him. And with that jealousy might come speculation, false accusation. They might say you got it unjustly, uh, calling you all sorts of names. Others look at what the hardworking and successful man has and they assume that he only has what he has for some dishonest reason. They speak against him, they're angry at him or they simply want what he has and they try to take what he has. And we really need need not go further than where we are in our country currently to understand this condition. That when men have worked hard and they have labored hard. Others envious of them wanting what they have not labored for. Solomon calls this a great evil. So let's talk economically for just a moment. We live in a mainstream culture that is beginning to see the concepts of capitalism as their enemy, right? We've heard a lot about that. In the last election, uh, there was uh, an a outspoken socialist who ran and uh, re- received a great amount of support in this country for his efforts. In the minds of this group of people, free market capitalism is a system of greed and wealth whereby the wealthy and powerful seek to profit off the backs of those who are weak and poor, exploiting them for gain. Perhaps you've heard this. You've heard people talk about this. If you've listen to the news or if you've uh, seen interviews or if you watched any of the the debates a year ago or so, others have and they don't. Some have and some don't and because, because others have and they don't, they immediately assume or demand that this means that there's some inequity in the system, that the system is rigged against them. So they demand in turn that those who have earned give to those who haven't. That they give those earnings to them. Because they have so much anyway and they don't need that much. So what does it matter if you take some from them and you give it to those who don't have? In fact, this has been the common claim of communism since it has really been rising to prominence in the last century. And it's little sister socialism. Both say the same thing. That if we just took from the haves and gave it to the have-nots, then the haves will still have enough and the have-nots will not, uh, will get more and everyone will be happy. But it doesn't work that way. And it's important to state within this context that those who claim the evils of free market capitalism, they're not actually looking at free market capitalism. They're looking at a system where men are unregulated and so they do take advantage of the poor. Often called in, in the world crony capitalism. Where people and companies collude behind the scenes or with the government to deny free market the ability to decide winners and losers and instead rig the market in their favor. And this is as well a great evil and we, we've talked about that and we, we will, again, if we ever preach another message on the poor... But the solution is not and indeed cannot be to take away money from those who have earned it to give it to those who have not because this is the very evil that Solomon is speaking of. Why doesn't it work this way? And it comes down to an element of human nature called incentive, right? Incentive is what drives a market for both the haves and the have-nots. On the haves end, building a successful enterprise comes with tremendous risk. A person using his money and his time and his ability to build something that he hopes will make him money. His capital is invested into this enterprise. And if the enterprise fails, then he loses. Now, we could possibly uh, see people that would be ambitious to do so. But what might induce a man to risk what he has to invest everything that he has to pour into making himself successful? What motivates him is reward, Right? The reason why he's making such huge risks is because with high risks, when successful, there's often high reward. And he deserves the reward because he is the one who took the risks. Sure, he is making more money than he can spend, but that's a benefit of taking a huge risk. But what happens when society says, you must assume all the risks, and if by chance or by skill, you are successful, we're going to take the reward for your effort, and we're going to give it to those who had assumed no risk at all. What happens when a government says to a business, business, you make so much money and you are so successful that we're going to demand that you give your employees more of that money. Even though the employee has not assumed the risk of building that business, they have not assumed the risk and overhead of stock and inventory and all those things. Even though the employee has only a portion of the effort, we demand that you give a larger portion of your reward for your efforts to them. And what happens is demotivation, right? Who in their right mind would be willing to take the risks, to be the one to step out and to take the risks, if when they receive the rewards, those rewards are going to be taken away from them? Who's going to risk everything just so that he can give a larger portion of that reward to others? Nobody's going to do this because it simply isn't worth it. And so because of the risk, the degree of risk... Because the degree of risk does not correlate to the amount of reward, risks aren't taken. And then society, where there's no risks, uh, there, there's no innovation. There's no progress because they're so busy trying to preserve what little they have that they have no motivation to take risks to get more or to gain. So on the side of the haves, incentive is in place through risk and reward. But the haves are not the only ones who lose incentives in a system where because of one man envying the ambition of another, that man receives from the, the goods of the man who has ambition. The have-nots suffer in this system as well. In a merit-based, effort-based, labor-based system, the time, effort, and skill a man puts into his reward, or uh, it puts into his, his labor is rewarded in turn. He puts in a fair day's effort. He receives a fair day's wage. He doesn't give anything to his employer and his employer doesn't give anything to him. Skill is exchanged for money. And at the end of the day, both men leave happy and having preserved the dignity of knowing that they have not been misused or ill-treated. And in this system... The man who takes more risks, or the man who acquires greater skills, or the man who puts in more labor is rewarded with compensation. But what happens when that is turned on its head? What happens when the man that has little skill is overcompensated? What happens when he is given that which he has not earned or does not deserve? What happens when the powers that be take the reward of the risk takers, or the skill acquirers, or the laborers, and gives it to those who have not put in the risk time or effort? It de-incentivizes personal betterment. Why should a person take a risk when he can live off of the risks of others? Why should a person put in the time to acquire a skill when he can live off of the skills of those who have? Why should a person labor long hours when he can have the money others uh, from others who do? And so the have-nots are not compelled to better themselves because they're receiving handouts. And society does not progress because it fails to innovate when people regularly receive money which they have not earned and do not deserve they become demotivated thus to take risks to acquire skills or to put in the labor necessary to better themselves and as we say that let me just make one thing clear once again as we've said several times before We're talking about compelled redistribution of wealth where the risk takers, the skilled laborers, the innovators, the time laborers have their rewards taken away and given to those who are not putting it in. We're not talking about giving to the needs of the poor where a man volitionally takes that which the Lord has blessed him with and gives to the needs of those who do not have. That's an entirely different subject. That's something that the scriptures tell us we ought to do. In fact, consider what the scriptures have said. And we've talked about it before about the poor. To the chief musician, of Psalm of David, Psalm forty-one, one: Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. Psalm eighty-two, three and four: Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. Proverb seventeen, five: Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his Maker. And he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. He that hath pity on the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and he and that which he hath given, he or will he that's the Lord pay him that's the man who had pity again. Proverbs twenty one thirteen. Whoso stoppeth his ears to the cry of the poor, covers his ears, doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to see it. He also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Proverbs twenty eight twenty seven. He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack. But he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. And for good measure, let's hit the New Testament. James 2, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? As we've mentioned, we as believers can develop an unfortunate tendency which we must fight at every turn. This tendency is to assume upon the conditions of a man that because we believe a man should labor for his daily bread and because we believe that a man does not work, he should not eat. As 2 Thessalonians 3.10 tells us, we can be tempted to fail to have pity for the poor. When we see a beggar on the street, we might be more likely to yell, go get a job than to give him a $5 bill. We envision him going and spending his money on all sorts of things that he doesn't need. Or as they've caught on hidden cameras before, the guy finishing his begging and going and getting into his brand new truck and going to his big home with his three car garage, right? And we envision that and indeed they are out there. But when we allow those who do take advantage of the system to callous us against those who are not, we put ourselves in a dangerous place of indifference. And this does not please the Lord. And so as we consider these verses, it's important for us to discern the difference between what we're talking about here. Say, Pastor, what are we talking about here? Why have I gone on this economics rabbit trail? Well, because what we're talking about in verse 4, what Solomon sees as a great evil is when he sees men who have labored and who have worked hard for what they have earned, and then he is envied of his neighbor. That his neighbor gets upset and envies him for what his hard labor has earned him. And the idea of envying that which somebody else has by their hard work is that I'm not willing to put in the work, but I'm upset at you for having something that I don't when you have put in the work. And Solomon says that this mindset is a great evil. And this great evil is actually the mindset that has compelled The anger of society today, where they want wealth distribution, where they want things to become more fair, right? Pay their fair share, all of that stuff that was going on over the past eight years or so. All of those things are an outworking of this great evil where a man works hard for that which he has. And then for that hard work, he is envied of his neighbor. His neighbor wants it and his neighbor intends to take it from him. Solomon says that this is a great evil. There's a slippery slope of entitlement. When people believe that just because they exist, they deserve things. All of a sudden, when we consider the concept of basic human rights, we're no longer talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as our founders identified But instead we're talking about my rights at the expense of your rights, right? This is the great evil that comes out of this concept where a man does every right work. And for his right work, he is envied of his neighbor. And it is a great evil indeed. He goes on in verse 5 and Solomon says this. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. All the while... As we've considered already, there are these fools, right? So there's these men that work hard. They labor for what they have. They are successful because they've worked hard, because they have ambition. And all throughout, there are these men who instead fold their hands together. The concept of folding their hands together is that instead of working with their hands, they're resting their hands. It's the guy that's sitting in a chair, resting his hands while he's watching somebody else do the work. That's what it means. And then it says that he eats his own flesh. There's a metaphorical idea here. He's not actually chewing on his arm or anything. He survives only with what he has in store, right? So he's stored some stuff up, perhaps. Many don't even do that. And then they're surviving on that. And then they're just kind of, they're living day by day. They're only living off of that, which which, uh, they can scrounge up on any given day. The concept of folding hands is a way of speaking of a lazy man, what the Bible calls a sluggard. The phrase comes up two times, specifically in the book of Proverbs, this concept of sluggardliness. Each one makes God's view of lazy people quite clear. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 through 11, we see this. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which... Having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep, yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep? So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want as an armed man. Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34. I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding and lo it was all grown over with thorns and nettles had covered the face thereof and the stone wall thereof was broken down then I saw and considered it well I looked upon it and received instruction yet a little sleep a little slumber a little folding of the hands there it is a little folding of the hands to sleep so shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth and thy want is an armed man. In both of these cases, we see the expectation or or, or the, the view of a lazy man, a man that has no initiative, a man that's not willing to get out and do the work. And Solomon says, I looked and I saw men that worked hard and for that a man is envied of his neighbor. But then I also saw the man folding his hands, eating his own flesh. He says, there's a disparity here and it's a great evil. We already mentioned it, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10-12, through Paul says this, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busy bodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work, and eat their own bread. Shut your mouth and get to work. Stop talking and start doing, right? And... All of this helps form our understanding of of what it means to be a lazy man. And it brought this concept, these concepts, brought Solomon to an interesting conclusion in verse 6. He says this, Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. So, the reason why we can bring this back to ambition. As Solomon actually said, because man envies you for your hard work and for your labor, it's actually better, in Solomon's mind, to have just a little bit to where nobody wants what you have, nobody envies what you have, but it's enough to live on, than to have a great deal. But he's looking at both of these evils. And he's seeing th- this trouble And it's leading him to a mindset where he says, is God really in control? Remember, we're looking at different things that are, are, are threatening that phrase, threatening what he said in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3 that to everything there is a season, to every work under the sun, that God hath made all things beautiful in His time. And He says, look at the look at the heart of man, that a man works really hard, he's envied of his neighbor, then there's these other people that are lazy, and they want what they haven't earned. Better just to have a little bit, than to have to be a part of this whole messy system of greed, and of envy, and of lust. And can God really be in control when we see all of this greed, and envy, and lust operating in the system. And so Solomon says it's actually better to have just enough than to be very wealthy. Now this is not doctrine. This is not saying wealth is sin. It's a principle and one that's not just found here in Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs chapter 30 verses 7 through 9 the son of Jacquez says this. Two things have I required of thee. He's praying to God. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove from me vanity and lies. "...give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Agur prays to God that he might experience neither riches, where he would be compelled to deny God because he has become self-sufficient and so does not need God's help or provision for that which his wealth can easily supply, or poverty, that he might be compelled to steal, and so blaspheme the name of God, who in his law commands, thou shalt not steal. Again, he's not saying that riches are evil or poverty is evil. But what he's saying is there's a temptation upon the the rich man to deny God by saying, I can handle everything with money. And there's a temptation upon the poor man to blaspheme God by stealing that which is not his own. And so Edgar says, God, if you would be good to me, let me just be right in the middle where I have enough to live, but not enough to compel me not to trust in you. And I don't lack so much that I have to. Feel like I need to steal. And here we find what Aristotle called the doctrine of the mean. Others have called it the golden mean. In mathematics, the mean is the average, where one adds up a set of numbers, then divides it by the number of numbers that you're counting, and you reach the mean. You reach the average. In philosophy, as Aristotle used it, and as we might think of it here, it is the happy medium between these two temptations. Where to divert in one direction or the other is to find a place of danger, imbalance, or compromise. It is in many ways the essence of the Christian experience where we walk in the Spirit. On one side we have licentiousness, on the other side we have legalism, and God asks us to walk that balance. It is also in many ways the essence of life where we seek to walk in simplicity and sincerity with the world around us uh, being evil. And so Eger asks the same thing of God that Solomon considers to be his conclusion to this problem. He says, better it is just to have a handful with quietness than to have both hands full with all of this vexation and spirit that comes from people wanting my stuff when being envious of me and hating me simply because I've been ambitious and successful in every right work. And so as we apply this morning, as we try to take this in a direction, what I'd like to do is I would like to call us unto self-circumspection. It is not uncommon for us living in this world to have, to allow the world to one degree or another to worm its deceits, its philosophies into our way of thinking. We've seen it in the church over the past many decades uh, pervasively, right? We've seen how um, the the uh, heavy emphasis upon feminism has entered into the church. We've seen the heavy emphasis uh, on uh, um, on uh, moral indiscretion has entered into the church. We've seen those things, we've seen how churches have tried, as they have allowed culture to get into the church, they've tried to justify those things in light of God's word. And we are also seeing this, and and, and it's been quite regular among uh, many groups. We're, we're seeing this in regard to this concept, this evil of right work and envy. And I'd like for us to take a step back this morning and help realign our hearts and our minds so that as culture heads in this direction, a direction where they want to take from those who have earned to give to those who have not, that we have adjusted our hearts to properly understand where we stand in this. And this is the blessing of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is helping us relate ourselves to the world that is around us. That's the whole point of the book. That's what Solomon has been doing. Solomon has been saying, I went out into the world and I did the work and I saw the things and I followed my heart and I listened to its philosophies and I found out that it it comes up wanting. And so the first question, is your heart full of envy at the halves? Do you find yourself always looking at wealthy, successful, whatever it might be, and envying them for what they have and you don't? Have you been lured into the blind foolishness of our day, which believes that it is the duty of the haves to give you the fruit of their efforts simply because they have it and you do not? Now, a large number of us aren't in the public school system, and so you won't have this being preached to you, but particularly for those young people that are. May I encourage you to be careful. Because you're going to be hearing this a lot. And you're going to have teachers that want to direct you into this mindset. And we need to resist steadfastly this lie. And assume a biblical perspective of honest labor. This is a doctrinal message. This is not a political message. This is not implicitly an economic message. This is a doctrinal message. Because labor, hard work, and effort is a doctrinal message. Issue. Now we don't ignore. Evil. Exploitation. All of those things. We don't ignore those. But that's beyond the scope of our text today. But can we assume a mindset. Where we ask for a fair day's wage. And for that we give a fair day's work. Can we assume a mindset. Where we recognize the value of labor. Where we recognize the system that God has created. And we see the rightness of in it don't be fooled by the lies of this age by the demands for free this and free that and to demand for yourself that which for which you have not labored is godless and it does not please the Lord question number two are you among the entitled as an extension have you been duped into thinking that you are entitled to that which you have not earned are you living off the generosity of others while simultaneously refusing opportunities to earn yourself? Are you living off of the compelled retribution, redistribution Excuse me, of others' wealth and coming to expect it to be there for you so that you feel as though you deserve to have others' care for you? We're coming into a time in our society and it has already reached several other societies when this attitude is pervasive. And as we have already said... So too we must again to live an entitled life is to live in a philosophy that is inconsistent with the Word of God. It denies the personal accountability and responsibility that God has designed in our in, in, in our world, in our system. It does not please the Lord. Question number three. Are you ambitious at the expense of quietness? This is the other end of the spectrum. This is the one for the successful. For the successful among us or for those that would desire to be successful. Solomon says, Better is a handful with quietness than two hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Are you one of those who has two hands full but has done so through much travail and vexation of spirit? Who has done so at the expense of peace? We'll talk more about this next week. But God forbid that we should seek and pursue success at the expense of those things that are more needful. Marriage, family, health, church, eternal riches. And the question we must ask is this. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth having two hands full with vexation of spirit than to have a handful with quietness? If we trust the divinely inspired Word of God then we learn that it is much better to have enough and to enjoy the true gifts of God than to have much at the expense of spiritual blessings. So there's two questions that we ask here. Number one, are you, when you when when you have a mindset, when you think toward what you are going to do, when you think toward the future, or when you think toward now, or when you think toward how you're going to act, is it all about money? Are you dictating your career choice? Are you dictating everything around money? You want those two handfuls and you'll take it with vexation of spirit rather than, rather than that handful with quietness. May I, may I warn you against that philosophy. And may I warn you as well, and again we'll talk about this more next week, to always keep in your mind to always keep at the forefront of your mind. That God is the one who provides. If we trust the divinely inspired word of God. Then we know. That God will provide. And for us to spend. All of our ambition. To the to the ex- expense of other more needful things. On wealth. Is to waste that ambition. One day this life is gone. We pass into eternity. We cannot take that with us. And one final statement as we close. Man can find lasting satisfaction. It's the point that we've made every week and we'll continue to make. Solomon is looking at all of the things that the world has to offer and he says, I, just, I couldn't find in it lasting satisfaction. You look at what's happening in the world today, you look at what's happening economically, you look at the mindset of the people as it is transitioning, as God's people reject God and the, the light of God's Word, they're rejecting personal accountability, they're rejecting personal effort, they're rejecting responsibility, they're rejecting these things. We become an entitlement and a handout culture, we expect others to do for us what we will not do for ourselves. And in it will not be lasting satisfaction. But there is lasting satisfaction to be had. And as always, I'll point you to one verse. And we'll look at that verse. Or one passage. We'll look at that passage as we close. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. The Bible says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content." But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, not money itself, mind you, but the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love. Patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Can we, as we align ourselves with God's word, as we understand what the Bible says about the poor, as we understand what the Bible says about labor, as we understand what the Bible says about wealth, can we seek that which is above can we look to that which is best and whether the Lord would make us wealthy or whether the Lord would not make us wealthy. Whether, whether we would have earthly success in, in, in that realm or whether we would not have earthly success in that realm. Can we keep the main thing the main thing and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and meekness above all. Knowing that it is in these things that we have those eternal riches. Maybe you need to reorient your mind today. It was a bit more of a, of, of a cultural statement sermon today than anything else. But may I encourage you, if your mind has been uh, cluttered by this a little bit, if as you've listened to the arguments of people on both sides of, of the spectrum in this culture, if culture has begun to make, if, if, if sinful culture, if unbiblical culture has begun to make inroads into your heart, would you, would you cut that off today and would you bring yourself back to the principles of God's Word? recognizing that that's not how God has designed things. Yes, it is a great evil, but it doesn't compromise God's control. God is still in control. And there's coming a day where He'll make it all right. Let's close in prayer.